Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. Yes, I'm popping back into your ears just one more time before the break, because in the first days of 2024, I had the chance to talk to Peter Schmitz, producer, researcher and presenter of the podcast Adventures in Theatre History, Philadelphia. I'm always pleased to see a new episode from Peter land on my podcast feed because he always has a good theatrical story to tell and delivers it with tremendous verve and enthusiasm. Peter certainly likes to delve into the detail. His podcast is littered with fascinating stories, big and small, from the highways and byways of Philadelphia theatre history. But for our conversation, I persuaded him to give us a more general overview of theatre in Philadelphia, from how it got started to the present day. And he was keen to point out the many links, in some cases one might say the dependency, on British and more generally European theatre throughout. So please join us now on a journey through theatre history, Philadelphia style. Where do you say that theatre really started in Philadelphia? How far back do we go? Conventionally, one talks about professional theatre in Philadelphia. There's, if you look at any textbook, you're starting about the year 1754. You're starting in the mid-18th century. But in my mind, I always look at the fact that theater was was forbidden. And the, the reason it starts in 1754, which is rather late, you know, some 80 years after the city was founded, and even, you know, the, the, the Swedes had been here before the Brits got here, and the Lenny Lenape long before that, was why was theater not here? Why was there no theater in Philadelphia? And it's it's not an interesting or uh, irrelevant topic because famously, uh, Philadelphia was founded by Quakers. It was founded by William Penn um, and uh, and the Society of Friends. Now, it wasn't only Quakers that were here, uh, but they certainly formed a majority of the population uh, for most of the early 18th century. And their ways of doing things tended to predominate. And one of the things that... The, the Society of Friends really didn't like was the theater. And they shared this uh, anathema of, of the theater with other Protestant groups of the time. And you know, famously, you're just getting to the part in your own podcast uh, when theater is forbidden in, uh, in London itself yeah. during the mid-17th century, during the Commonwealth. And that's because the Puritans essentially were in power. And theater was something that had bugged them for a long time Absolutely. since Shakespeare's day, right? And when they finally got their hands on things, they said, well, that was one of the first things to go. Uh, they, and they tore the theaters down. And, of course, it snuck back in. And you're, you're going to cover all that. But that was the formative years of young William Penn's life. He's the son of Sir William Penn, who was a big uh, figure in the British Navy. And uh, his, the fact that Sir William Penn switches sides uh, during the course of the Commonwealth and joins the King Charles... Uh, and loans King Charles a great sum of money uh, means that King Charles II is completely in William Penn's debt, literally. Mm. And to pay off this debt, he gives him this huge grant of land uh, in North America, uh, make Penn's woods. So when he when he sets up the government of uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, he specifically in, in the first founding document, it's specifically forbids the showing of plays, which is lumped in with a bunch of other things, you know, bear baiting, uh, bullfights, uh, cockfights, uh, gaming, dancing, all sorts of, uh, it's not, but it's not just that they were, they thought it was immoral and irreligious, although they certainly did. Um, but to the, the Quakers' point of view, who were a radically egalitarian sect, 
Uh, theater was a place of social distinction. Theater was a place where rich people got better seats and uh, people wore fancy clothes to show how rich they were. And to the Quakers who all dressed in you know, plain black and who you know, used the informal the and thou instead of you know, the formal you, um, yeah. all these things were, were not the way they wanted their, their new uh, society to be like. They wanted uh, people to be industrious, they didn't want holidays. They didn't want times when you would take off work and go entertain yourself. If you weren't, you know, um, working, you should be praying. I was or reading the Bible, and that's that sort of feeling permeated the cultural air in Philadelphia for most of its early years. Now, it wasn't the only American city like that. Uh, Boston, uh, for instance, famously, which was more controlled by uh, Congregationalists and actual Puritans. Uh, forbid theater itself uh, there too after uh, 1730. And uh, there were other mainly New England um, parts of uh, the North American colonies that were like that. Um, not in Canada, uh, where the, you know, the French were happy to do plays and not down in Spanish-speaking areas of, of North America and not in Virginia uh, and uh, the Carolinas, which were controlled by Church of England types, uh, planters, who mm -hmm. were very pro-theater. George Washington, as we learned, loved going to see plays. He was of yes. that class. He first goes to see plays in Barbados when he takes a trip there as a young man and falls in love with the theater. And after that, you know, goes to see plays whenever he can. And he could fairly often you know, because uh, these, um, these traveling groups of English players had arrived in America by then and were putting on plays in uh, Williamsburg and in Annapolis and so forth. So he was pretty well versed in you know the modern European, uh, or at least British, uh, repertoire. But in um, Philadelphia, it was a little more, it was a little harder to get things going. And we note that in the early 1750s, um, this group of uh, British players comes over called the, the Hallams. Was the Hall now Hallam, if anyone is a specialist in 18th century British theater, they would know that's a, that's a name of a theatrical family. They had pretty wide you know, influence in London and in provincial theaters at the time. And the, the thing that you find uh, is that in England and uh, most of Great Britain in the mid-17th century, there were restrictions upon the theater in London in particular. There are only two major houses, right? There's official houses, yes. patent houses, where you could patent, I should say, where you should could do plays, spoken plays, Covent Garden and Jury Lane. And that means that there were a lot of these theatrical families who couldn't find work, right? And so they started to branch out and find, look for new markets. And some of them were working in Bath and in Dublin and in other provincial cities. But inevitably, some of them started to join this migration um, into along the eastern seaboard, especially to the West Indies, where the, the biggest money was down in Jamaica and Barbados. But some of them started coming to the cities in along the Atlantic seaboard, even places where they weren't necessarily welcome. They were testing out new markets. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, one of the things that happened in Philadelphia, if you study early American history, you know that part of the, the, the complaint that the colonists had against the mother country was that you couldn't manufacture things here. You had to only take manufacturing from England couldn't make plates, you know, <laughs> you couldn't mm -hmm. make anything. You all had to, you couldn't bring tea, uh, famously, um, yourself. You had to accept it from the East India Company. And one of the things that 
the British Parliament kept doing was knocking down all these local laws against theater. Because again, to their mind, that was a restraint against um, you know exports from the home market. We're going to send you plays, and you'll bloody well like it. And um, <laughs> so every time some of these colonial laws against the theater would come up, the 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 home uh, office would knock it down and say, "No, no, it's allowed. You can bring plays." And so, in 1754, this this group, the Hallam Company, comes and they they set up shop in a warehouse along the riverfront. Now, Philadelphia at that time is only a you know, a town of maybe 20,000 people or so. So it's not it's not mm-hmm. London. It's not Paris, no. not by any stretch of the imagination. It would be a smaller provincial town. In, but it was a completely new territory. And it turned out that there were lots of people in the city who were eager, eager to be part of the larger intellectual and social environment of the Enlightenment. And they saw mm-hmm. theater as part of that. So when we look at uh, the plays that were done in the 1750s and 60s by these touring companies that would, they never stayed in Philadelphia long. There wasn't, again, there wasn't enough people to make it a permanent home. They would move to New York and down to Williamsburg and down to Charleston and then to uh, Jamaica. They would do the standard British repertoire. They brought about, you know, a couple dozen plays. There were about 20 people in the company, you know, uh, and they would do restoration comedies and adaptations of Shakespeare and comic operas and sentimental comedies, especially uh, moral mm-hmm. comedies that taught valuable lessons. Those were really popular here. Originally, they would um, do their plays in, in a warehouse uh, in Philadelphia. It was uh, Mr. Plumstead, a former Quaker, uh, had a big warehouse down by the uh, Delaware River, and he offered it to this theater company, and they set up a you know a stage on one end. And it proved that there was a uh, audience of people who were interested in that sort of um, discourse. And there was a prologue, which one of the actors um, said, you know, they would write these special prologues, of course, before plays. That was famous in the 18th century for for the occasion. This was reported in the Gazette, which was Benjamin Franklin's paper. And it's pretty clear to me that Benjamin Franklin was was pro-theater. Um, And uh, I think he was subtly encouraging the fact that Philadelphia should join the rest of the world. So this this actor gets up to speak this prologue, which says, To this new world, from famed Britannia's shore, through boisterous seas where foaming billows roar, the muse, who Britons charmed for many an age, now sends her servants forth to tread the stage, the world's stage, where mankind act their parts, the stage, a world, they show their various arts. So it was like, join the, join the world, join the party, don't... You can't uh, hide your you can't uh, hide yourself in this special little Quaker world anymore. And on the whole, Philadelphia begins to become a home for theater. And but they they can't build a theater within the city limits proper. It's kind of like London. Remember in, in Elizabethan London, you have to build your theaters on the other side. Well, that's what they did here too. In fact, there was an area of town called Southern, really? <laughs> which was just at the right, and that was where they built the first theater, uh, just as uh, Shakespeare did in uh, his day. Yeah. So, um, and then it, it gets more, the, I try to, I skip over the 18th century part of the story pretty quickly in my podcast, because I'm not, I'm not as fixated on the 18th century. I'm, I'm a 19th century man by, tra- by training. So I'm, I'm always sort of hurrying through the 18th century to, to get to the 19th century. And that goes against the, the, the main grain of what most people think about when they think of Philadelphia and they think about history. 
they want to talk about the 18th century because they want to talk about the Continental Congress, they want to talk about the Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. the Constitutional Convention, and even today, that's mainly how Philadelphia markets itself, you know. Absolutely, because it was absolutely central to the to the revolution and and the establishment of the new country. Of course, yes, it was. But I would point out that while all that was going on, uh, the Continental Congress had banned theater. Had officially, this was one of the first things they did was in order to stop the people from being distracted by um, you know useless and time wasting pursuits. They forbid them from doing theater. They forbid American army officers from going to the theater. Mm -hmm. uh, they thought it was a terrible waste of time. That, that sort of Protestant um, mindset had, had was was very widespread then, and it wasn't until Philadelphia becomes the capital of the United States. And that, that may not be widely known elsewhere. It's not even a widely known fact in America that Philadelphia was the capital of America for 10 years from uh, 1790 to 1799. It was a famous compromise. Uh, the, most people, if, if you know your history of America in the 18th century from the musical Hamilton, as I think many people do, mm. <laughs> yeah, you're, but what's interesting is that Philadelphia is completely written out of the story. It, it's hardly mentioned. <laughs> In the musical, he he moves everything to New York, and New York was briefly the capital, but it soon it soon shifted to Philadelphia and was for ten years. Mm. And because George Washington had been elected the first president, and George Washington liked plays, well, they were going to do plays. He made it clear. Um, I'm just found I came across something in a book today, an excellent book, uh, which is all about American presidents going to the theater. It explains something that I've, I've noticed when I look through newspaper archives and I see an ad for the for a play that's being staged in Philadelphia about 1790, 1791. And it says at the top of the ad, it says, by particular desire. Well, this book just explained to me that the particular desire was George Washington's, that he wanted to see this play. It was kind of like a you know royal command. Yeah. So it was a it was a hint to all of the other theater goers in Philadelphia that President Washington will be there, and if you want to be in the room where it happened, you had to go see that show because by particular desire, uh, President Washington was going to be in the house that night. So in the 1790s, George Washington's favorite actor, a guy named Thomas Wignell, broke off from the the old American Company, the remnants of this. Hallam Company that had been um, one of the premier companies in the America and then in the new uh, the new country for the for about three decades, he had broken off from it and founded his own company, which he called the New Theater. And he builds a new theater on Chestnut Street, right next to the Continental Congress, right next to what's now Independence Hall. And George Washington, you know, favors him with his you know he, one of the first subscribers is General Washington. So. That um, really settles the the whole effort. The Pennsylvania legislature is, even before that, is forced to repeal the ban on theater. Philadelphia, for about 20 years, becomes the premier theatrical market um, in America. Now, there were, of course, there were theaters in New York, and now there were ones in Boston, and there were ones in uh, Richmond and in Annapolis and Charleston and Baltimore. So it's not the only place that theater is happening, but for about 20 years, it's the main theater. It's the most prestigious theater. It's got the most talented people. But the, the people who are working in this theater are almost entirely English, almost entirely British actors. Mm -hmm. um, and there are very few native-born Americans who are involved in the theater. And there's this 
there's this odd transformation that I know is keeps happy. Um, people from these old acting families, you know, they're born to it, darling. They, you couldn't expect anyone else to know about it. You had to be one of the uh, one of the old families. Some of the uh, Kembles and certainly the, the the Wignells and the Hallams and the Woods. They come over here and they sort of become American, but not all the way. They're still doing a very standard British repertoire. There are French plays in there, uh, which are translated, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a lot of uh, French people uh, in Philadelphia, uh, especially after the um, Haitian Revolution. A lot of uh, French emigres arrive in Philadelphia from Saint-Domingue. But it's mostly in English, and it's really sort of a a reflection of London tastes and plays by Bickerstaff and plays by John O'Keefe and plays by Sheridan, uh, as well as old uh, restoration comedies, Thomas Otway, you know, are uh, are part of the standard repertoire and what everybody wants to see. And the American theatrical taste, which we can see in Philadelphia in the late 18th and early 19th century, is very shaped by the European mindset. Even mm-hmm. in this new American country, there is no sort of there's occasional attempts where somebody writes a play and they say, oh, this is finally an American play and maybe set an American topic, but it's very much in an English style. It uses the acting companies are set up on English lines, you know, the whole, the mm. whole the way they're organized. It's just like a, a British acting company um, uh, as opposed to a French or German. Do you have a view on why that was? I mean, is it that the audience they're appealing to is mainly people who don't have any animosity towards Britain post? Well, that that is part of it. Yeah, the the, certainly George Washington and the Federalists, although he just, you know, of course, ran a a rebellion against the British rule. But soon after that's all settled, as soon as American independence is established, the upper classes and the ruling classes of the American establishment on the whole are fairly Mm pro-British. And there is there is certain conflict going on between those who are pro-French, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson versus, versus, versus Hamilton again. If you, right. <laughs> I refer you to the to the musical. Yeah. Um, but uh, once the um, French Revolution goes badly, <laughs> once uh, Napoleon takes power, that all sort of goes away. So the tastes of the classes and the male class, because it's mainly men who establish playgoing and, and playgoing tastes at the time, is fairly pro-British, and you want, and there isn't a lot of distinguished you know, the American playwriting at the time. So it takes a while. It takes a good long while. And it's not until a Philadelphian, uh, Edwin Forrest, uh-huh. uh, actively begins to commission plays by American authors and to assert a sort of American uh, primacy and actually takes those plays back to London uh, in the 1830s and 40s that a uh, American style of theater uh, begins to even develop and along with the developing of minstrel shows, uh, which I also have a whole episode about uh, minstrel shows in Philadelphia, uh, begins to export now what is American uh, back to uh, back to Europe. So are English actors who are turning up in the 18th and 19th centuries, are they finding theatres that they would feel were comparable to London? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. The most famous example of it is the, the new theatre, which I mentioned at the beginning. Now, it's often called the first Chestnut Street Theatre because it was on chestnut street here in uh, philadelphia but no one called it that at the time it was the new theater because it had replaced the old theater which was down in southwark and uh the new theater was brought over by thomas wignell again 
an English actor, you know, who uh, cousin of the Hallams, you know, who had gone back to London. He had gotten all these investors um, in Philadelphia and uh, gone back to London and had, had bought scripts, had bought music and had hired actors and had gotten a uh, architectural plans for this new uh, theater, which was kind of based upon the Covent Garden Theater. It wasn't as big. Okay. Its basic outlines were the same. So it it was basically a standard British stage, which with a large four stage, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, two uh, entrance doors, you know, on either side, and then upstage were the the groove uh, system where flats would be brought, you know, uh, back and right. forth yes. uh, for the scenery, and you didn't interact with the scenery behind you. <laughs> all the no. all the acting was done down on the four stage. So that was absolutely standard. Uh, British production values. And they often would do quite spectacular scenic effects, but they were usually reproducing things that had already been done um, on uh, American, uh, on British stages. Right, and even yes. um, uh, circus artists, which came over. I talk a lot about the uh, the, the popular circuses, uh, which played in Philadelphia in the early 18th, uh, late 18th, early 19th centuries. And they were doing routines that had been established at Astley's Circus, uh, in London or at the Circus Franconi in Paris, these would have been completely familiar routines and situations to the uh, European um, uh, audiences at the time. That whole story of circus and minstrel vaudeville shows really entwines with the story of what we might think of as straight theatre. Everything is coexisting in the same ecosystem um, in the city, isn't it? Right, right. Was there a constant stream of British actors coming across the pond or is it the same actors coming back again because they find success there? Well, the the, the thing happens then as now. Uh, if you're a British actor, you nowadays you do sort of have a dream. Oh, I'd love to go America and really make a big big money. Absolutely, yes. Uh, well, that was the dream then too. Um, so some actors come over, they stay a few years, and then they you know make a good pile of money and they come back or some don't make any money and they have to stay or they have mm. to go back in poverty. But we begin to see with the arrival of sort of faded British stars. The first is George Frederick Cook, this huge star of the London stage who was basically uh, fired um, from Covent Garden because he, he was a terrible alcoholic and he showed up drunk too many times. And he gets sort of shanghaied by one of these other British expat actors, Thomas Cooper, and gets thrown onto a ship in Liverpool. And, and 45 days later, he dries out and he wakes up in New York and finds out that he's the most famous person in America. And people are desperate to see his shows. Mm. When he comes to Philadelphia, there's practically a riot at the box office because everybody wants to see the famous George Frederick Cook. Now, no one really knows that name today. I tell a great story uh, in the podcast about what happens to, he dies a few years on, and what happens to his uh, mortal remains, um, which are eventually buried when another famous British actor, people might know, Edmund Keane, shows up. And he, Edmund Keane thought that George Frederick Cook was, it was his idol. So he, when he arrives in New York, he makes sure that George Frederick Cook's remains are suitably buried. He raises a huge monument above him. He steals one of his finger bones and takes it back home to London and puts it on his mantelpiece. 
But uh, then Edmund Keene does the same thing. He tours throughout America, introduces the curtain call, by the way, to the American yeah. stage. Uh, first happens here in Philadelphia at the Walnut Street Theater. Something that had been unknown on the uh, American stage, that, that once you're dead, you know, your character is dead. Richard III wakes up, stands in front and takes a bow, and there's more clapping. Many people are like, what is it may have been a French thing because I, I note in the in the memoirs of some actors, I say, this is a French habit that we really ought to be stamped out right, right now. <laughs> we see we can see actors like you know, Cook and Keane and Fanny Kemble and um, William McCready and on into Sir Henry Irving and even you know continental stars like Sarah Bernhardt coming to America in order to make you know a big killing to to make as much money as they can, then bring it all back home. Some of them stay, like Fanny Kemble ends up marrying a local Philadelphia boy and living here much longer than she wants to, as it turns out. Some end up uh, going home. But Philadelphia, in particular, becomes a, up until about the Civil War, is a major place for uh, market for all these European artists to tour and arrive at. Uh, the great French actress Rochelle uh, comes to through uh, Philadelphia uh, in the uh, was it, 1840s. Yeah, she catches she catches a terrible cold backstage at the Walnut Street Theater, from which she never really recovers, uh, and she she can't go on. But meanwhile, the the Philadelphia audience doesn't understand her her French you know stuff anyway, and they're throwing things from the balcony. It's terrible, terrible. But Philadelphia is no longer by this point in the narrative, you know, the center of things. And by which point, I should explain that I don't. I don't want to claim that the story that I'm telling is the most important story in theater history, because it certainly isn't. You know, I'm, I'm, I've backed way off the main road. I've gone down a side road here, and I'm talking about a very particular city that's a major American city. It's, mm -hmm. for most of the 19th century, the second largest city in America. But by the end of the 19th century, it gets surpassed by Chicago, and it's, it slowly falls back down in the list uh, every time I look up. But it be comes a place with a, because I think of this early prominence in American theater, it maintains a really fervent theater-going audience. Mm -hmm. And I must say from this point on, every time I read about a either American acting company or a European acting company arriving into Philadelphia, they all remark about how amazing the audiences are here, how passionate they are, how interested they are to be at the theater. And even though their ideological antipathy to the theater remains amongst some religious types, on the most part, uh, Philadelphia theatergoers uh, remain really avid and passionate and interested. And it's always a great town to play. So everybody from Oscar Wilde to, you know, to the great Italian opera singers to, to I've already mentioned Henry Irving, but you know, uh, make sure that they stop in Philadelphia if they're going to of course, they'll go to New York, mm. because at this point, New York is the major theater town. You're going to go yeah. there first and you know, make that the focus of your... Of your. Uh, but they're going to stop by Philadelphia. And something interesting always seems to happen here. I always end up with an, with an interesting story about any touring European star that ends up coming through town. One of the things you may remember is that I talk in particular about censorship campaigns yes. that happened in the early 20th century, right? This antipathy to theater sort of resurfaces in the early 20th century when there's all these moral crusades about morality, and people are especially freaked out about the arrival of um, what's going on in in films, in the, the cinema, this new thing, where uh, all sorts of immorality and drinking and licentiousness and religion can supposedly be seen. 
And that bleeds over into the live theater as well. So I, I have a number of episodes which focus on the uh, absolute shock and alarm when uh, an American, uh, well, he's a German immigrant again, it's Oscar Hammerstein, uh, builds an opera palace in North Philadelphia and uh, stages uh, the uh, Strauss opera Salome, you know, with the text by Oscar Wilde, right? Mm. And that sets off a tizzy of... <laughs> Of, of, of moral alarm. And, and there are people, you know, screaming around the papers, threatening to close it down, to forbid the production. And of course, everybody shows up to see it. Because again, the reason people get so upset about things is because they're so excited about them. And they don't want to admit how excited. <laughs> it's publicity. <laughs> yeah. There was great publicity. It always is great publicity. But at times, things really would get shut down, including Sarah Bernhardt coming through town on one of her last tours uh, is forbidden to put on the play La Samaritaine which is a biblical drama by Edmund Rostand, uh, which she had done for years in the theaters of Paris and in London, everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But somebody gets a bee in their bonnet that it's an irreligious play, that it shows Christ on stage, and that's wrong. You can't do that. I don't know, like Christ has been on stage since the Middle Ages, so I don't know what they, <laughs> they were. So I suddenly thought this was a new thing. I guess some of them were upset because they thought that Sarah Bernhardt herself was going to play Jesus, and they thought that, right. that had to be stopped. A bit too far, yes. <laughs> right. And of course, that wasn't what she was. That wasn't what the play was. She was playing the Samaritan woman. It's the name of the play. So it actually does get banned, and that's right before. And now, something that that might be known, and I know this, it might be known elsewhere. My son uh, was recently uh, spending a. Uh, he was in college a few years ago, and he spent a semester abroad in Dublin. He went to University College in, in Dublin. And he took a course on uh, Irish uh, dramatic literature, um, I'm, I'm proud to say. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned that the professor of that course sort of perked up and said, oh, you're from Philadelphia. Well, you know, that's the place where they uh, got upset about the Playboy of the Western world, and they threw the mm -hmm. actors in jail, which isn't quite true. Uh, but the, it's, it is true that, that they did, uh, Lady Gregory and the Abbey Players from Dublin did get arrested. Uh, for staging Playboy of the Western World and the local Order of Ancient Hibernians using a uh, Pennsylvania statute, which was active at the time, could make a citizen's arrest and could um, haul them up before the court for presenting an indecent play. I mean, it was all thrown out of court immediately. They didn't. They didn't end up being horribly persecuted. But it it you know it made the news. It got around. Uh, and once again, Philadelphia had a reputation in most of the early 20th century as being a, a sleepy, a judgmental, a, um, a censorious, and a blue-nosed kind of place where yeah. nothing interesting was going to happen. That reputation maintained uh, for most of the early to mid-20th century. Yes, in one of your recent episodes, you point out that joke, I think it's in 42nd Street, where they're joking yeah. about Philadelphia being right. a boring town to go to. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you, if, for those of you who like to watch old movies, um, I, I I play a clip from the the movie Forty Second Street, you know, from uh, 1932, which is about a Broadway play trying out, trying to make a big hit on the stage. And at one point, you know, the, the, they've rehearsed, they're all ready to go, and the the act, the director Warner Baxter is yelling at them and says, "All right, what this this company, you're not doing anything right." And tomorrow, when we open in Philadelphia, at which point the the whole uh, chorus goes, "Philadelphia," and Somebody said Philadelphia, PA, which is short for Pennsylvania. Um, and then um, uh, I think it's Ginger Rogers said Philadelphia, PU. 
on Sundays, it's P-U, because Philadelphia was famous for having nothing was allowed to be open on Sundays. There were no plays on Sundays. There were no bars open. No rest. Nothing happened on Sunday. So for, for show business folk, it was a dead town. Dead town, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and that, that reputation maintains. However, at the same time, it was known for having this enthusiastic theater-going audience on every other night of the week. So Broadway shows began to, like this, the movie 42nd Street, um, illustrate, began to send plays to Philadelphia and other cities. But Philadelphia is often the first place you'd go to for, for a tryout. Mm-hmm. So before a play would go to New York, uh, it would be sent usually by the, the Schuberts, who were the main Broadway producers at the time, who owned a string of theaters all around the northeastern United States. But they owned most of or controlled the leases of most major Philadelphia theaters. So it was easy to you know, find a space in Philadelphia, find a great house, and get a response to a play that you were trying to shape for the New York market. Right. If you look at almost every major play of the mid-20th century, like Death of a Salesman, Streetcar Named Desire, Diary of Anne Frank, The Miracle Worker, uh, in terms of you know non-musical plays, as well as big musical plays, like you know, Anything Goes or Kiss Me Kate, A Sweet Charity, all of them first had their world premiere, literally, in Philadelphia. I'm kind of annoying about this on social media. I'll see th- I'll see things. I was about, this play premiered at the Booth Theater in New York in 1928. And I'll write a little comment and you think, well, actually, it first played in Philadelphia in 1927. When I do that, everyone gets annoyed with me, um, rightly so. And when I lived in New York, I would have been annoyed at that Philadelphia guy who, who spoke up because I'm not a native Philadelphian, I got to say. This isn't my hometown. I only got here, you know, a couple decades ago. And I'm, uh, this is my adopted uh, hometown. I'm not a diehard Philadelphian, but I'm a stickler. I'm a stickler for accuracy, so I'm annoying that way. But I mean, the unwritten rule is that when a show's on tryout, when it's in a developmental run, right, out of town, and you can still rewrite things and you can still cut mm-hmm. musical numbers, it's not really open. It's not really the finished product. It, it doesn't count. Noel Coward uh, brought a play here, uh, Sail Away, was it with, with Elaine Stritch. He he got to Philadelphia and he completely rewrote the whole show. He he cut a whole character. He fired the actress playing that character. He signs all her songs to Elaine Stritch. It was sort of like what happens in Philadelphia stays in Philadelphia. It's not the real thing. We can change things as much as we want here. It's not until it gets to the Broadway house. Mm-hmm. Um, that it counts. And then we say it's opened, it's ready to go. It's the finished product. You know, sometimes the shows would leave New York uh, and one of the first places they'd come to is Philadelphia. And in fact, they would change then for the touring market. They would add new numbers. They would revamp the cast. They would revamp the production values. So Philadelphia is is important in the uh, American um, commercial market as well. There's a, there's a period, this tryout town period of Philadelphia theater. It's we, people still refer to it here locally because oh, that was back in the tryout town era. So Philadelphia was regarded as a place where shows were experimented on, where or would come to after they had already become hits, and there were many large. You know, major uh, theatrical buildings on a par with anything else in America, as many major American cities had at the time. The big touring productions would come to these big elaborate theaters, the 
the Erlanger Theater, which is on Market Street, or the Schubert Theater, which is on Broadway, on on Broad Street. We're big as we're just the same as any Broadway house. So, um, like a lot of cities in Europe that were outside of the main capital, you'd have you know big local institutions, and there were there was a small little theater movement. You know, the, um, there was there's a little jewel box of a theater called the Plays and Players Theater, which was built back in 1911. And there was outside of the city, there was the Hedgerow Theater Company, uh, which I talk about a lot in my podcast, doing more artsy type of uh, theater. And that slowly builds throughout this whole tryout town movement until we arrive at like at the 1980s. And at that point, and I wasn't here. I'm alive at this point. I can remember the 1980s, and I know you can too. But yeah. I was not interested in Philadelphia. I was elsewhere. My my parents had gone to college here, so I was aware of it. The theater in Philadelphia was pretty moribund, and the city itself was in bad shape uh, in the 1970s and 80s, like a lot of American cities. It's still a major city, but it had lost about half a million people in population. Mm. It had lost a great deal of its industry. It had lost a great deal of its sort of civic oomph, as it were. It only had only its uh, sports teams. Like a lot of you know, cities in, in England who have been passed by, you know, in the deindustrialization, they cling to what aspects of local pride they can. Often that's, you know, the, the local football team. Well, it's just like that here. But there was still this ongoing, a well-trained theater audience. And a lot of people who were, were now uh, coming up through university training programs <laughs> And uh, we're looking to be somewhere else than New York. Um, the the regional theater movement arrives here uh, in the mid-1960s when a uh, director named Andre Gregory, and Andre Gregory was born in Paris. He's the son of Russian immigrants, um, very wealthy uh, Russian immigrants. And he ends up going to Harvard, but training at East Berlin. He actually goes to the Berliner Ensemble. And he ends up in the long run actually going to Poland and studying with Krotowski as well. So he's he's very uh, European-minded. And he's the one that's chosen to be the first leader of this first nonprofit theater company that's founded in Philadelphia in the midst, in, right in the midst of this whole tryout town era. And he pretty soon, after two seasons, he gets in big trouble and he's kicked out because he does, he does crazy things. And he's, you know, uh, you know, an egomaniac in the way that all great artists are. He's a great artist. There's no doubt about it. But it begins a, a movement in, in Philadelphia that is often very influenced by the more avant-garde European theater now. Uh, Peter Brook comes through town. This is an interesting story. And I mentioned in the podcast, Peter Brook brings the RSC through Philadelphia in 1964, about the same time that Andre Gregory is, is helping to set up this Theater of the Living Arts. And he brings Paul Schofield, and they're doing you know, King Lear. And this was a production that he toured throughout Europe, and it had been a big success. It was very, very spartan, very spare, you know, lots of big iron walls and you know, gray costumes. It was very stark, very you know, text-centered. And it completely bored the Philadelphia audience to tears. You could just tell. No one was, people were leaving. It was, oh, it was three or four hours long. It was the whole version. It was, a, you know, it wasn't cut. And he mentions this, if you know his book, The Empty Space, Indeed. which a lot of people read, yeah. You notice there's this passage where Peter Brook says that he, he noticed that this wasn't going well, and he didn't blame the people of Philadelphia. He said, no, it was us. We weren't reaching them. Mm. We weren't approaching this theatrical problem the right way. It wasn't that, that Philadelphia wasn't good enough for to appreciate how be- how great our art was. 
we weren't bringing the play to them. And I should go about it in a different way. It really is sort of a, a revelation to him to think about audiences' responses are worth uh, appreciating for, for meet people where they are. And you can take them to different places, but not if you condescend to them. There are uh, theater companies which you know come through town. Grotowski himself comes through <laughs> Philadelphia uh, in the early 1970s um, uh, with his company. And they uh, he ends up, uh, coming uh, to America, he's got this big grant to do his play all over America. Mm -hmm. And at first, they they bring him to the Walnut Street Theater, which has now been rebuilt for the third or fourth time. And it's sort of sort of bare and stark and modern. And uh, he's like, no, 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 can't do it. <laughs> and he ends up, uh, uh, somebody finds him a, a, a disused Catholic church space way in South Philadelphia, which is much, much more to his liking. It's, <laughs> it's got more dirt and grit to it. He ends up doing uh, Apocalypsis Cum Figuris uh, down there for an audience of just 100 people. You know, that's all he wants. In the 1970s, interestingly, Grotowski has a lot of uh, influence upon sort of uh, the theater makers, people who are making theater here. There's a young company called the Manning Street Theater Company, which is also, which I've done a lot of particular work on. I'm hoping to bring out more, uh, whose uh, who's early leading figure had actually gone to Poland to study with Grotowski. He's the guy that ends up finding Grotowski, that little church in South Philly. Then later, these two Czech immigrants arrive, uh, Yuri and Blanka Zizka from Prague. They had exiled themselves from uh, communist Czechoslovakia mm. because the tiny theater that they'd been working on had gotten you know, stepped on by the government after you know, 1968. They ended up defecting and leaving for West Germany, but they end up for various reasons in Philadelphia. And they join up with this radical uh, feminist uh, theater collective called the Wilma Project, uh, which is sort of a Wilma as a play on William Shakespeare. What if you know, Shakespeare had a, a sister named Wilma, right? Sort of an inverted version of Will, William, but Wilma. As, as is the case with many you know, young uh, sort of cutting-edge theater companies, after three or four years, the original founders run out of gas mm. and the and interest, and they have fallings out. And the, the Zizkas essentially take over this, the Wilma project, and they make it into the Wilma Theater. And over the next 30 years, they create what is essentially a Central European type of theater company. And they're very interested in doing, you know, uh, plays by Václav Havel. And they're very interested in doing plays by Tom Stoppard. They end up having a real relationship with Tom Stoppard, uh, who, of course, was born, you know, in uh, Czechoslovakia. And yes, indeed. Yeah. Both Havel and Stoppard end up allowing the, the Wilma to do many of their plays in first in America. And uh, they become a nonprofit, you know, Actors' Equity professional theater company. And they start from a very small base. They basically take over a, a little garage and they convert it themselves, 100 seats. Then uh, later they have their own larger theater, which is now stands um, on uh, Broad Street, uh, south of City Hall. And it's still one of the major uh, theater companies in the city. But it comes from a very European aesthetic. Uh, and for years... It's really where plays like uh, uh, Our Class, which is a, a Polish uh, play, uh, was staged here, uh, as well as you know, uh, plays by Gabo Garcia Lorca are going to be staged. Well, they're probably going to be done at the at the Wilma. At the same time, though, at the same time that the the, the Zizkas have brought this new sort of Central European aesthetic uh, to Philadelphia, 
and they're staging, you know, uh, they're doing versions of 1984 or their or Orwell's Animal Farm uh, with some of their early work. The, the Walnut Street Theater, which has for years been called the oldest theater in America, although it really isn't, but it has this cachet to it, uh, is revamped, is re- rebuilt once again in, 19, in the early 1970s. And by the early 1980s, they, the board, this is a very old line Philadelphia establishment uh, institution with a lot of uh, local money behind it. And it becomes designated an official state theater of this. They hire a man named Bernard Havard, who is at that point in Atlanta. But he's from, again, one of these old theatrical families. He's from an old British theatrical. The Havards go way back in British theater and uh, in, in uh, Belgium as well, although they had moved to Canada by that point. Bernard is very much, and still is, he still runs the theater. <laughs> We're talking about a, a work he's, you know, uh, he's now, I think, uh, in his 80s, but he's still running the play. He's very much of that old type of uh, British theatrical manager. Uh, Vox Populi, he always says to me, the voice of the people, Peter. We want to do what the people want to do. Although occasionally he actually did um, collaborate with the Zizkas at one point. They staged a joint production of Cyrano de Bergerac of all things, <laughs> collaboration on that back in the 1990s. But on the whole, he's doing, you know, he'll do three big musicals a year and then two non-musical plays, usually something by Oscar Wilde or Noel Coward. Or uh, So I, they just announced their new season today for next year. They're doing uh, Hay Fever. Although this, right now, they're about to do a production of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But it's it's... Because it's a larger space, it's you know eighteen hundred seats. They have to fill a much bigger space than the Wilma, so they they are looking to bring in a whole crowd of people. Yeah. So it's interesting that these two types of European aesthetics are still existing uh, here in uh, Philadelphia today. At least I see it as a European aesthetic. Maybe that's just because of my own uh, particular fixations. But I thought I thought that'd be a nice way to sort of uh, end up. Uh, the story talking about uh, European theater and Philadelphia that I still think you can detect, even though it is now an old American city by American standards. Uh, Philadelphia is one of the older places. We can point to things that go mm. all the way back down the street from me here where I live. There's a Quaker meeting house that goes back to 1695, right? <laughs> which to us is really ancient. I know that's not old. <laughs> but our- That's pretty old by anyone's standards, but... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, right. I'm going, okay, that 17th century uh, Quaker meeting house, that's a long way. So it's it's an older American city, and it has a pretty deep uh, history of its own. Certainly a lot of native-born uh, theater artists and writers, uh, playwrights, have, have ended up having an effect on the, the, uh, the world scene. The fact that everything happens here in sort of a, a, a microcosm, it's a microcosm of uh, American theatrical development. You can see the stories more clearly here. Uh, you can pick them out. Mm. Uh, they're more distinct uh, just because they're not happening as on uh, the huge wash of the, the the New York stage where there's hundreds and hundreds of stories to be talked about almost any day. Um, I can I can uh, pick them out uh, more easily. It certainly sounds like you have a thriving theatre scene in the city. We do. And, I, you know, of course, like every place else, it's we're in the post-pandemic era. Mm-hmm. It's still up in the air of, you know, how things are going to develop. It's not clear. Uh, but I must say it has bounced back pretty well. Not all the way, certainly. I, I think if you talk to the management of local nonprofit theater companies, they would have a whole list of things they would like to point out are not going well. But comparing it to 
other cities um uh, i can see around america i think i think it's going it's going fine and there is because philadelphia is a the it's a it's it's easier to live here than it is in new york it has a long term stable base of theater artists who are willing to work mm. and there's enough theater companies between the central city and then the suburban companies as well there's enough places where and and with all the local universities um here um there's enough places for people to work and support themselves and and maintain a life as a ongoing uh a theater artist that uh, work can continue to happen here so i hope it's a place that um, will continue to be rewarding to to talk about <laughs> in the years to come I, I i'm pretty sure it will be my thanks to Peter for his time speaking to me, and I do hope that your appetite is whetted for more theatre history from Peter. Please do go and find his podcast, Adventures in Theatre History Philadelphia, on all the podcast apps, and enjoy the many episodes that he has already produced. That is, of course, with theatre spelt in the North American manner, ending E-R. I have also put up links in the show notes and on the website guest page and links to Peter's own website, which includes not only the audio episodes, but blog posts full of more theatre history details. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back for season six of the podcast in a few months' time.